Hello and welcome to this week's Treat Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. I am joined this week by Declan Hart and Oshin Doherty. How are you, lads? How's it going? How's it going, chaps? How's things? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, I think we've we've had a pretty newsworthy week um, in the world of sport, certainly in the world of um, of Premier League action, and um, obviously that's all been uh, been uh, usurped today by 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 the the, the passing of uh, the Queen. Um, so I suppose that tore our, our rundown uh, up a little bit because uh, at the moment, at the time of recording, at least we don't know if there's any Premier League action going to go ahead. We assume there's not, uh, so we'll probably focus a little bit on on the Champions League and. Uh, and maybe have a little look at the Premier League last weekend. But um, lads, I suppose, you know, Tuesday evening or or, or was it Wednesday afternoon or morning rather when um, the news came through that uh, Thomas Tuchel got sacked. Um, I was like, wow. You know, it, it's a kind of news that was surprising. Like, I think we had mentioned it last week, Declan, when Simon was on that. You know, he could be on the shortlist of maybe five or six names, but you still expect the likes of Lampard, Gerrard, Rodgers even to, to, to get the sack before him. I don't think anyone have bet money on, on, on Tuchel uh, being pipped uh, uh, or pipping them all to to be next in line. Um, and then I think come Wednesday night, I'd wonder was Graham Potter wondering, Jesus, will I hold out for the Liverpool job? <laughs> because that, should, uh, that could become available by the end of the week as well. Um, very disappointing performance against Napoli. Um, and we'll get to Napoli in a second. I thought they were quite good, and maybe that's kind of been forgotten in in all the discourse of of how bad Liverpool have been. But um, I mean, an absolutely dreadful performance from minute one. Uh, defensively, um, the midfield in particular looked quite poor again and very leggy. Um, and I think I was thinking back to last summer, uh, just ahead of last season. Um, the whole kind of commentary going into the season was that Liverpool. You know, they were starting to feel a little bit bland, and that they hadn't changed much up. And a lot of people thought, uh, you know, this could be the sign, or this could be the first sign of, of regression. And obviously, uh, it turned out that it was far from it. But at the moment, uh, going into this season, it's like a, a, a real malaise has set in. Um, everyone looks slow. Um, the kind of press has completely died away, um, and it just feels like they have kind of set into that kind of. That status that a lot of people had expected of them last last season, um, were just a real struggle. And you, you saw it with the defense last night against Napoli. Um, I thought Joe Gomez was quite poor. Trent, <laughs> I, I saw a compilation of him earlier, where he just—it's like there's um, a, a negative magnetic force in the Liverpool goal, <laughs> like like just repelling him away from from running back. It's 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 it's, it's something awful has kind of come over him really, but. Um, I'm not sure what you made of it all, Declan. Yeah, like uh, the Napoli, I, I expected would put up a good performance against Liverpool because I, I quite rate Napoli, but I didn't expect that they would destroy them in that first half. Like they always, they missed a penalty as well on top of everything, so the scoreline could have been even worse than it was. Um, you know, Osman got through and, and hit the post, having rounded Allison as well at nil all early in the game, so. You know they created a load of chances, and and you know just before I go on to Liverpool, like Napoli <laughs> lived up to the billing and were great. And uh, it was great to see Sa- Zambo and Guisa of Fulham fame uh, pop up with a with a goal, <laughs> and, and Giovanni Simeone having like the most emotional moment I've ever seen when someone scores a third goal in a three <laughs> 0 uh, You know, which was great. But um, yeah, with Liverpool, it's it's a huge concern now. 
Like, I don't think Klopp is quite at the point where we can start talking about being sacked. Like, that would that would usurp the surprise of Tuchel going by, like, tenfold, probably. Um, so, you know, I do obviously believe that he can turn it around. And, and he, he even mentioned a refresh or a reset on, on, on how he sees the team and, and how he's going to set up the team. It's really interesting what he's going to do with that. Because it's just so obvious at the moment that what they're doing right now isn't working. They've so many problems. I think that's the the thing for Tuchel. Like, I mean, or not Tuchel, sorry, for Klopp. I've got Tuchel on the brain. But, like, I mean, defensively, they were very bad. The midfield looked like the whole legs have gone. Um, Joe Gomez looked like he played his first game of football last night. Looked like it was just they picked someone from the crowd, threw on a pair of boots and said, go on out. He was absolutely... I, I actually... I, I felt sorry for him almost. He just couldn't get the ball out of his feet. Um how James Milner is still starting in that midfield, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, there's an awful lot of stuff that are kind of going wrong. And then Trent, like, I saw a tweet, someone said it was like when you're playing FIFA and your uh, controller stops working. Like, he just didn't move. I think it was for that, for the second goal. He just, now it wasn't all his fault. Gomez had a big role in that as well. But he just kind of stood and looked and let them walk through. And I was just like thinking to myself, like, I mean, there's three or four goals already this season that you'd say, God, Alexander-Arnold was very, very bad on them. And his output going forward is probably not as good at the beginning of the season as it was, as it usually is. So, like, I mean, the whole thing you say is, yeah, he's not brilliant defensively, but he gives so much going forward. But if if he starts suddenly not being as good going forward, there's a lot of questions uh, over him defensively still. Yes, yeah, it feels like he's not going... He's not good going anywhere at the moment um, and like you mentioned Oshin, there, there feels like there's problems everywhere and early on I thought you know it would have been quite difficult to replace Sadio Mane and I, obviously you can't pin all of Liverpool's problems on his departure um, but f- you know from the very front all the way to the back and you can kind of see it with Mo Salah at the moment um, where you know he's completely lost his touch and it's like he, he's kind of lost his powers to a certain extent. Um, and there were a couple of moments throughout the game where, you know, Bob was coming his way and it, he ne- either needed two or three touches to try and get it under control or he just completely misread it and and, and, it, and it went out for a throw-in or, or a goal kick. Um, and I suppose when, when you look at Liverpool's form over the past couple of years, so much of it has come down that right-hand side between Trent and Mo Salah. And when neither are trucking on and I suppose the midfield doesn't particularly help um, and I do kind of feel sorry for, for Harvey Elias as well to a certain extent who's playing that kind of right-sided midfield role um, or the right of the tree where he, he still has a lot of work to do you know like he has to kind of fill in for Trent he has to link play with Salah and you know he's playing every game and he's still only 19 years old um, it just kind of all harks back I think to something we mentioned last week Declan is, is that midfield area that they didn't improve on this summer. And I mean, the fact that Milner is still starting, um, it was pretty, pretty evident in the Man United game a couple of weeks back. And I had the exact same fears when I saw the team sheet for the Napoli game because you just know that they were going to be all over Milner in the midfield um, with Anguisa, who's, you know, he's loads of pace and power and, and, and he's going to uh, run all day alongside Labotka. Uh, um it just felt like, yeah, this is this isn't going to be Miller's day. There's there's a lot of pace in this in this Napoli midfield that's that's going to cause him a bit of problems. Um, but yeah, I just it it is a huge concern, and and it's hard exactly to see where the reset button is that you mentioned. Yeah, like it, it feels like there's a real confluence of a lot of things going wrong. Like they didn't refresh the midfield; they're in the middle of trying to rework their attack. Uh, then there's the drop off of uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and um, Robertson on the left, who just don't look like they can reach that same intensity that they did last year for whatever reason. Maybe they just needed an extended break. Maybe they just you know weren't rotated enough over the last year, and how their bodies already are starting to feel the wear and tear of uh, the amount of games that they've played. Um, you know, kind of makes me wonder why did they, why were they so quick to get rid of Neko Williams? Um, who's at Forest now, who has looked decent uh, at Forest as well and probably mm, could have been yes. an able deputy um, to Trent, especially now given his performances. Um, like the only position really where you look at, at, at Liverpool and you think, okay, well, there's no issues there is Alisson. Like Alisson still looks 
as good as ever. Um, but that's that's not really what you want to be saying about the, <laughs> about the team, really. Um, like even Van Dyke looks like he's lost a bit of a step, which you can understand because of his age and the recent injury that he had this time two years ago now. Um, that he should only really be fully recovered from in the last six months. But he's what he's gone thirty now, I, I believe. Then Konate has been out. Madip is unreliable fitness-wise. And then that leaves you with your fourth-choice centre-back playing every game. And I think if every team was playing with their fourth-choice centre-back every game, like they would be exposed that bit more. Um, and we're seeing that with Liverpool now, with Joe Gomez, is just so far off the level of Konate and Matip that it's really hurting the team along mm. with Van Dijk, just not quite being at the same level. Um so like there's a lot of issues that Liverpool need to get through and, and, and they're kind of stuck with what the team is now because the window's just closed um, and I don't see them overhauling everything in January either. So like this could be a really long season ahead for the team. Yeah, it's a tough one. And like it's probably not a coincidence that Liverpool's you know best form and, and, and most success has coincided with Matip starting alongside Van Dijk. Um, and I think you could even tell to a certain extent in the, in, in the second half when Matip came on that things looked a little bit short up. And I think there's probably more of a, a, a calm aura around the defence when, when himself and Van Dijk are together. Um, and Canati, as you mentioned, who was probably angling to be second choice after Van Dijk going into this season before his injury. Um, I mean, he was probably Liverpool's best player in the Champions League final um, against Madrid back in May. Um, so like without those two players, uh, it is a huge loss, and and you do wonder if uh, uh, if that could be the end um, uh, for Gomez as a starter at least uh, behind behind Matip and, and Canati when he returns. Um, I suppose we should mention Napoli, who are excellent. Uh, you know, they 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 completely took a, a stranglehold of the game, um, and apologies in advance for 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 butchering his name, but um, I've never seen a player go from kind of like. Um, how would you describe him? Maybe um, not not necessarily a kind of a football hipster type of character, like he's 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 flying in this Syria, but a guy that's kind of gone from the unknown. Um, you know, people are tweeting about him. Um, people are kind of you know, oh, this guy is, is, is one to watch, and then he just pops up with a, an absolutely unbelievable performance against Liverpool. Is uh, is the Georgian Kavicha Gvarc Kelly? Um, which I have on no doubt in my mind. Sounds that, uh, good to me, Kev. Yeah, sounds pretty good. <laughs> um, so from here onwards, we'll, we'll go the, the the Jordan chap out wide, but uh, <laughs> a hell of an introduction for him. Uh, still only 21 um, and a, a very interesting story. He was at Ruben Kazan um, when uh, the war in Ukraine kicked off, uh, moved back to his, uh, uh, his home league in Georgia and got a very swift move down to Napoli and, uh, he's he's probably going to get a, another step on pretty quickly if uh, he can keep up those kind of performances. Uh, yeah, he looks class. Um, I'd be lying if I said I knew a whole pile about him before last night, but he was he was brilliant. And um, Napoli in general, I thought, were very good last night. They were just, like it sounds kind of simple, but they were just getting the ball forward as quickly as possible. The amount of times, it seemed to be that if Napoli just played two passes it was suddenly a 3v2 on Van Dijk and Gomez, and then Gomez was having an absolute mare. But um, yeah, Napoli looked very, very good, and he was at the forefront of it. Um, and then even Osman goes off, and they still look brilliant in the second half. Zelinski in midfield ran the show. They looked very, very good. And you look at them and you think, uh, I think Ronaldo was linked with them for for a while during the women. <laughs> How could Ronaldo get into that team? Hmm. Just doesn't fit him at all. Well, nothing yeah. seems to kind of fit Ronaldo, but like, I mean, they are such a fast and kind of energetic group. Um, and they just they just ran all over Liverpool. They did what I think, um, it was a lot of commentary after the, the Fulham game at the end of the season. It was Fulham did to Liverpool what Liverpool usually do to other teams, and Napoli just completely Liverpool last night. They just were all over them in their face, annoying. And that's a few times now that Liverpool haven't kind of looked up for a fight when that's happened to them. And I know we're talking about how good Napoli are, but you can't kind of get away from uh, how concerning that would be if you're a Liverpool fan. Yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm really big on Napoli. So, uh, you know, I, I'm really kind of glad for them that they got this kind of result and are now receiving the attention that I think they kind of warrant because they were really good last year but got done by a lot of injuries <laughs> at crucial times. 
Um, and now this year, you know, they lost Koulibaly, Mertens, Insigne, like three really important players. They're uh, close over the last five, ten years, really. And they look even better again. Um, and I, I really hope that they can go for it in, in terms of winning the league title. Um, and I suppose maybe that can make Liverpool fans feel a little better that they lost to a really good side, even if it was a bit embarrassing. But then you go back to the the performance on Saturday against Everton, and they're a really bad team. And like to put it simply, like Everton probably could have got a win out of that. Um, so that maybe was the more worrying um, performance from Liverpool, and and could be the the real harbinger of doom for them. Yeah, it's not looking good. But like you said, Napoli, um, they do look at like a very decent side. So, and it was probably. Um, on the radar anyway, going into the game, considering Liverpool's uh, record in, in, in Naples has been quite poor over, over recent years. Um, so that might have seeped in to a certain extent. Um, but I suppose, you know, Ajax now next week is going to be another difficult game. They had a, they had a, a pretty decent win against Rangers. Um, and even Wolves at the weekend. I mean, Wolves have a couple of results on the bounce now and they're, they're never a particularly... Uh, they're a particularly... Um, difficult team to, to, to play against in how they're set up um, uh, and I don't imagine they'll have much uh, concern uh, if indeed that game goes ahead um, quickly on Chelsea lads and I mean phew, losing to Dinamo was a great one on, on Tuesday night again you're probably kind of wondering yeah they've had a poor start of the season they haven't looked particularly uh, good in any games I think you know we were chatting about it last week and it seems like ever since around the 50 or 68 mar- minute mark against Spurs it's kind of all very quickly gone downhill but I never would have imagined that come Wednesday morning Thomas Tuchel would be on, on on his way out the door and very quickly it looks like Darren Potter is on his way in um, which makes me wonder has this all been kind of uh, orchestrated behind the scenes over the past week or two maybe Um what was your intro, in, uh, initial reaction, Dick, to, to, to this one? I suppose, you know, when you take into consideration the recent form um, and Chelsea's, I suppose, their history of, of, of manager impatience under Roman Abramovich, you're probably wondering, you know, Todd Bowley, he's backed him. Surely he's he, he's going to give him a little bit more time. Um, and either way, I mean, he, he has won a Champions League there and, and he did have a, a very good win rate up until now. Yeah, it's um, I, I I was quite surprised as well. Like you know, I know we mentioned it last week that he might be out the door. I didn't think it would happen on Wednesday. Uh, the the defeated Dynamo Zagreb it sounds like didn't even play a role in in this decision that it was decided before. Then I think the letter reported that. So um, you know, there was a lot. They they did a big kind of debrief on the whole thing there today, and there was a lot of details in it that didn't reflect well on Thomas Hugel, which makes me just believe that they've decided to throw him under the bus. Um, you know, which is a pretty big <laughs> call to make a hundred days in uh, as the owners of the club. Um, you know, Thomas Tuchel does strike me as a bit of a strange guy, so I, I could I could see how Todd Bowley and and Thomas Tuchel as characters don't quite match. <laughs> but you know, some of the reports were like um, Todd Bowley asked him, "Could Chelsea play a four four three? You know, so he was just constantly asking him questions about football. Like if I was I'm a football manager at that level, I would be kind of annoyed by that. So I can see why Tuchel would be frustrated and decide to just ghost Todd Bowley on WhatsApp. Uh, so you know, th- it's clear that there was just a breakdown in in characters there. So you know, in that sense, it it doesn't strike me as too surprising that he's gone and. You know, if you're thinking a new owner comes into a club, the first thing that they usually would do is bring in their own manager, uh, which was just something they couldn't have feasibly done once they immediately got, a ch- got yeah. in at Chelsea. So I think they've just struck while the iron is hot. The The only thing that is really concerning about it is that they've, they've just dumped £250 million on players that Thomas Tuchel specifically wanted and they've gotten rid of players that Thomas Tuchel didn't want, which is just not the way to run a modern football club. Imagine if you're Aubameyang. The only reason yeah. he went to Chelsea was to link back up with Tuchel. One day in and he's gone. Like, I'd say he's gone mad. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if you're uh, Marco Corella, who's just <laughs> you know, escaped from, from, from Green Bar and next thing he's back in the door. 
Yeah, that'll be a good, uh, nice frosty handshake there. It'll be like Brian Cody and Shefflin <laughs> when they do them see each other. Yeah. Because you wonder how Chelsea will set up now, obviously, under Potter. And, and the players don't really match the players that they have at Brighton at all. Um, so you figure it's probably good for the wing backs, so like uh, Chilwell and Reese James will probably be the central figures of the team now. But, you know, otherwise the attacking options are kind of all over the place there. So you don't really know who's going to thrive and who's going to be dumped to the side. Like maybe it's a chance for Ziyech to kind of turn things around because he was dreadful on Tuesday night. He, he was just genuinely <laughs> awful. Um, so maybe this is, you know, a good thing for him. Maybe it's something for Christian Pulisic, who's also kind of just been by the wayside lately. Um, makes you wonder what's going to happen with Lukaku as well, because I don't really see him fitting in with the way Graham Potter plays either. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, especially, uh, like you said, that, that kind of striker role, I can't imagine uh, Potter's going to walk in and expect... Uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang to, to kind of do what what he he has the the Brighton front line doing. So I do wonder is it, you know someone like Armando Broja who was probably perennially linked with a moved away from Chelsea all summer after his season at Southampton. Is he is he now well back on the radar? Um, I know he had a pretty decent cameo at the weekend uh, when he came on, uh, got on the end of a few chances. So he could be one that maybe is wondering is thinking yeah this could be my my chance to to fall in and maybe. Aubameyang will have to go back to his old spot on the bench. <laughs> I thought uh, Broha was very good any time I saw him last season. I don't know why Chelsea were so mad to get rid of him. Like, he's only young and he's a bit of a tank. I absolutely could see him being um, doing like the Danny Welbeck role, <laughs> if you want to put it like that. Like I think uh, I think he's pretty good. I can't see Aubameyang doing that. And to be honest, I can't see... As much as I like uh, Potter, I can't see him being there for too long. Like Chelsea are just going to eventually get bored and pull the trigger on him. Um, it took him a while to kind of get things uh, cooking properly at Brighton. Probably took him a season or so. He's not going to be given that time. Um, like he can't turn down the job, but it's like I mean, it's Chelsea. It's only ever going to end one way. No matter how good he does, he's going to just get sacked out of the blue. <laughs> it kind of seems to be what they do. Yeah, the positive for him is he's been given a five-year contract, so the inevitable payout should be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm ab- abnormally high on Potter. Like I, I, w- I was saying United should should get him in for Oli like this time last year. Like that's how high I have been on Graham Potter. So I do think he is capable of managing at a top four, top five level. But the Chelsea job, he just. F- like I get in one hand, you have to take it. You know, it is Chelsea at the end of the day. It's it's you're in the Champions League. It's huge budgets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the 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 likelihood of uh, oh, I told you so in a in two seasons time is just so high, and he's kind of back to a uh, back to square one. But I suppose you know, you see Brendan Rodgers got sacked at Liverpool, went away and kind of salvaged his career to a certain extent at Celtic. So it's, it's, it's not like Potter will be resigned to, to League Two football uh, if he does get sacked at, at Chelsea. But yeah, I, uh, it just doesn't feel like a right fit for me. I am, you know, I, and, and this is probably crazy to say um, so far out, but like I could easily have seen him in a shortlist for a, for a Liverpool or a Manchester City job, you know, three, four years away if, if, if it ever came available. I think that that's how highly I rate him. And that's obviously, um, you know, taken into consideration that he was going to continue what he was doing at Brighton. Um, um, but yeah, it just feels like a weird fit. And and you know, he could be he could be the man. He could, he could be the one to to end it all. Like we've we've gone through what you know, twenty nearly twenty years of of Roman Abramovich uh, slicing and dicing every every two seasons. This this could be he could be the one to to settle it all after all this time. But the the problem with that though. Is like, uh, like I mean, he's definitely good enough to do that. But Chelsea, if you don't win four or five matches, there's a very realistic chance you're going to get sacked. Everywhere else, you know, it might go to ten matches, and then you're saying, "Geez, what's going on here?" But they just seem to pull the trigger completely. Like Chelsea haven't even had that bad of a start of a season. Like it's not been great, but like I mean, it's not been terrible. And <laughs> Tuchel booted out the door a year after Champions League. Uh, I think as well, part like <sighs> I'd love to have seen what he could have done at Brighton. There. Brilliant team to watch. They play such good football. Yeah. They punch above their weight. They don't spend any money. They we spoke about it, Kev. Like your man Moises Caicedo just appears out of nowhere. 
brilliant player. They're just constantly unearthing these little class lads. And then I know he has to, in his own mind, I have to take the Chelsea job. It might never come again, but it is a bit of a shame because he would have loved to have seen if how, how far he could have taken Brighton. Yeah, I completely agree. Like his his Brighton side has been one of the most enjoyable to watch, even if they've been incredibly frustrating as well at times. And and the way they started the season has been so encouraging. Like they absolutely hammered Leicester five two last week. They got to win at Old Trafford to start the season. Like they've had some really good results. Fulham came aside, um, and you know they're they're the only team that have broke the the top six already to start the season. Like the otherwise the top six occupy the top seven spots. So like they that that shows how well they've started. And you really kind of wish, you know, was this maybe the year that they they finally kind of put it all together, having uh, always had, you know, a bit of an issue scoring goals uh, in the past under Potter, but now we won't get to see it. Um, I, I do wonder who that'll point next. Like, there's been no kind of name put out. If if they don't play this weekend, if all the games get cancelled, then they don't play again till October. So they do have a bit of time because their game against Palace mm-hmm. next weekend was postponed. Um, so you know that's probably good time, as good a timing as they're going to get right now um, for them in that sense. But I also like completely trust them at this point to appoint someone who will just be really solid and get the job done and carry on things ticking. Like I don't worry for them in terms of all of a sudden being dropped to a relegation battle or anything. Um, and, and with Potter going to Chelsea, like it's probably the best appointment they could have made in terms of a pure coach standpoint. But then in terms of a someone who can deal with the circus of Chelsea standpoint, you know, probably not so much. And that's the <laughs> only reason I'm, I'm wary of this appointment. Like I, I think the relation, if, if any part of the relationship is going to fall down here, it's going to be Chelsea's fault and not Potter's. Um, you know, so, you know, in that sense, I suppose it's a bit of a free hit for Potter um, and might give him a bit more freedom to try out some, some weird stuff, which could be exciting. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Mm. Brighton strike me as a club that probably have a very detailed um, file somewhere on on uh, all potential new managers uh, in the event that Graham Potter was was going to leave, uh, because I I presume you know they were well aware of his uh, uh, of his increasing um, ratedness uh, around the football, and I just do wonder how far up uh, that list Angie Postecoglou is. Um, you know, a manager who seems just seems unearthed players out of every nook and cranny and turned them into absolutely class players at Celtic and, and they're absolutely fine at this season uh, Champions League results aside uh, during the week but uh, it would be an interesting one to see him in the Premier League Yeah, I'd say he's very high up the list I think he's done super stuff at Celtic even the other night um, like I mean Madrid's class just kind of showed a little bit in the second half but for the first hour they were just they were brilliant even the way he speaks in his interviews you know he was asked like in his pre-match press he was like do you want to play down expectations and he was like no why would we say that let the fans dream and let them do all this kind of stuff um i i i would have a little bit of fear though for where brighton are going to get someone i know what you're saying kev about being so well prepared but his release clause was so high i'd say they were thinking no one's going to spend 16 17 18 million to get a manager so like I saw, now I don't know if this is true, that Adam Lallana was meant to be in charge for the game at the weekend. I mean, I hope that's not true. <laughs> I thought it was a joke at first. Oh, I seriously hope that's not true. Yeah, so like, I mean, hopefully uh, hopefully they do get someone. I, Thomas Frank was mentioned for them as well, but I can't see him leaving Brentford. Um, would you be surprised if Rogers jumped ship and ended up at Brighton? I, I think it's a very weird time to be trying to pick a new manager. But um, if I was Brian, I'd definitely be going for Postcoglu. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, like um, I, I think you're all kind of right. Like he's maybe the number one guy that you you could just pick. Like I I I, I do think as well that they might just pluck a guy that we can't possibly think of from some random place because <laughs> they seem like the kind of club that might do that. Um, but if if we're going with established names, like Postcoglu is probably. As as much as it would hurt Celtic to lose him, uh, you know he's only in the door what fourteen months now, right? Um, so you know to lose him would be a big blow there, uh, especially in the middle of this Champions League campaign, which seems to have really rallied the club again even further. Um, but I think he'd be a pretty solid appointment. Tick tock, tick tock, 
Tic tac. Spurs then, lads. Um, they left it late, uh, struggled a little bit early on against Marseille, who had a, a man sent off early in the second half. But um, it felt like a real big performance from Richarlison. Um, I think he's had to be a little bit patient uh, early on in his, his Spurs career uh, after the move from Everton. Um, and it seems like Conte was a little bit slow in kind of introducing uh, some of his new signings this summer. Um, he's kind of easing them in to a certain extent. And I, I suppose you look at the form of, of, of Son, who's kind of struggling, um, hasn't had the, the, the goals and assists that, that we're used to seeing out of him. Um, I do wonder, you know, are we going to see kind of a full introduction of Richarlison? And I suppose this weekend would have been the biggest sign yet um, if, if, if the City game uh, had gone ahead, uh, pending postponement there. But, um, you know, he, he's a kind of divisive character, but when you're scoring goals in the Champions League, um, in your Champions League debut as well, uh, having come from a, a relegation threatened Everton last season, um, it just kind of shows his quality and, you know, Spurs fans already seem quite enamoured with him and, 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 you know, you've seen it around, you know, with other clubs down the years, but, you know, with these type of characters that, you know, you, you hate him if he's playing for someone else, but when he's at your club, you kind of, he becomes that kind of beloved, hmm. um, kind of, you know, nasty little character that, that gets uh, under everyone's skin. But um, two goals in the Champions League and the first win in a, in a group that I think, you know, Spurs should absolutely be aiming to, to be getting out of and, and into the knockout rounds. Is there a more Antonio Conte-like player than Richarlison? Like, he's <laughs> just... Like, the way Conte just is so annoying to all the other managers, that's just what Richarlison is on the pitch. Um, I think... I don't know if he'll drop Son. I think he'll still give Son enough time to eventually play his way back into form. But it is kind of getting to the point where, like, Richarlison has to be playing. Like, you spent a lot of money on him. And two goals the other night. He's had a couple of assists. He had that thing in Forest where he got, <laughs> he was taking the Mickey out of him and the whole world kind of went on fire for a week. He's just, um, I think he's someone that Conte very quickly is just going to say, yeah, you're my guy and you're going to be playing most of the time. But I, I do think Son has to kind of pick it up. He's kind of, he looks a little bit like Salah the way, um, everything has just kind of dried up from, but, um, I think he'll be given enough time uh, to get back to it. But Richarlison, I, I love him, I have to say. I know some people might not agree with some of his uh, antics and all this kind of stuff, but I just think he's hilarious. He just gets stuck in. And he's someone, uh, like as a Man United fan, I would have loved to have him up front. I think he'd, I'd fall in love with him instantly. I think he's a brilliant little lad. <laughs> yeah, like the, the thing with Son as well is quite interesting because he's a guy who has performed exceptionally over the last three, four seasons now and he's he's had quite a slow start. But Conte has such a like fixed starting eleven a lot of the time. Like he he doesn't rotate very much, which is probably why he tends to struggle in Europe so much. Uh and now he's got this kind of conundrum on his hands of does he rest Son for a while and let Richardson into the team um or stick with Son and it's it's a tough one, obviously. You know, we don't know if they're going to be playing this weekend or not. But if they were, I'd probably, oh, I don't know. I'd probably still stick with Son. Like he, he just has this amazing connection with Kane. You know, he's the kind of guy that can just come alive, uh, and maybe the big occasion might even stir him to come alive as well. So you know, as, as much as I think Richardson is a really solid player, I think they did well signing him, even if sixty million kind of feels felt like a lot. Um, I think he's really good for those kind of. Uh, matches like a 2-0 win against Marseille like that's exactly what I envisaged him bringing to Spurs when they did sign him was that he could come on uh you know annoy teams like they did against Forest and play those Champions League group games where they don't really need to play a full starting 11 even if it is Marseille so you know he's he's proven his worth I suppose already which is a, a big positive for Spurs just quickly looking back to last weekend lads and I suppose I was really looking forward to it. Uh, it was the Manchester United and Arsenal game. Um, it was probably a sign that Arsenal were either very much legit in terms of their uh, form heading into this season um, and being unbeaten at the top of the league or what we were going to see out of United who seemed to be getting back on track after that horrendous start uh, for Ten Hag uh, when it looked like uh, it was all going wrong before it had even started for him. Um, so, Oshin, you must have been absolutely buzzing when, uh, uh, with the 3-1 win. Um, it was. Uh, I don't know what what does it make of Arsenal. I mean, 
they were well in the game, um, I thought. And, you know, they had the better of much of the first half. Um, I, I've been humming and hawing about the the, uh, the goal that was chowed off for Martinelli uh, in the first <laughs> half, you know, for that for the foul from Odegaard. I mean, it's it's a foul, but in the grand scheme of things, in this kind of new let it flow type of policy, it's probably something that, you know, you, you put it down to a part of the game and, and, and let it run. Um, so I probably lean on the side of, you know, leaving the goal. But um, in fairness yeah, to United, it, it they, they stuck with us. And it was, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a foul, but that's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of fouls when, when, when you're um, slanting the zone on VAR and, and watching the replays for, from multiple angles. Um, you know, the game would last six hours if you're doing that for every single <laughs> kind of little um, uh, guy jumping into each other. But um, Arsenal, what I was struck by was the changes they made in the second half because I thought, you know, they were doing okay. Like it, they were 2 1 down and wasn't necessarily uh, the end of the world. But they made three changes, including a Premier League debutant into. Uh, a kind of a, an environment that was that was it was a little bit feisty, like it, was, it kind of did have the hallmarks of a, an old school Premier League game between United and Arsenal. You know, there was some bite to it, there was some challenges flying in, um, and then the three one was that was the death knell there. Um, so a good result all round for United, I think, and especially for for Rashford again getting on on on, on the score sheet with two goals. Uh, yeah, it was one of those games. It was kind of strange. Um, I was coming out of it and. I was more impressed with Arsenal, even though that they lost, than I had been going into it. I thought they were class for an hour, and then Arteta just completely brained it and just decided to, you know, do a Martin O'Neill against Denmark and take off your entire midfield and just play five zero five, absolutely kamikaze stuff. Um, and I was I was happy with United as well. I have to say, this is the first time I've been on the pod that United haven't been hammered the week before, so I'm <laughs> thrilled about that. That's why I said yes straight away, but. Uh, like, I I think, I, I the, what I was just thinking from that game was like, Arteta, what on earth are you doing? Arsenal were, like, it was kind of a bit of a throwback. Arsenal are playing lovely football, but United are scoring goals or whatever. But up until, even when I went to 2-1, I still was looking at it thinking, or oh, United got one against the, end, uh, against the run of play there. Arsenal are by far the better team here today. And I still think Arsenal are a much better side than United. But to do something crazy like that, I did I think, like, I mean, if, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had done something like that, he would have got absolutely crucified. For He took off, I, I can't even comprehend that. I think Gary Neville was like as well. He's like, you've taken off your whole midfield. And it ended up being a lovely little pick-me-up for Rashford. I still have no confidence in him when he's one-on-one. I don't know why. It's going to take a very long time for that to come back. Um, I thought United... They looked. They look at least like they're a competent team again. They're not going to just get pumped anytime they play anyone remotely decent. Um, very much like a Solskjaer performance when they were at their best under him, where they were, you know, relatively solid at the back, but very very good on the counter attack. Um, the one kind of difference would be after those games, Solskjaer would say something. I'm reminded of when they played Villarreal last year and they were 2-0 down, they won 3-2 and it was a bit of a mad game. And like after it, Solskjaer was saying, oh, this is this is Man United, this is what it's all about. Whereas Ten Hag, he's been asked about the game, it's been a good win, even though it was a bit chaotic and, and under the pump for a bit of it. And he's talking about, yeah, it's good to get the win, but it has to be an awful lot better than that. Um, you'd like to see them have a little bit more of the ball. Um, but... I mean, four wins in a row after the first two games. I don't think anyone could have envisaged that, really. Yeah, it's it's four games in a row to win, like they and including against Arsenal and Liverpool. Like that's a huge turnaround from that humiliating loss to Brentford. But at the same time, like you still look at Man United and think there's a few problems. Like they didn't quite sort everything out in one window. I suppose there was never they were never going to be able to do that because there's so much to do. Um, like I, I, I get what you mean as well, Rashford. Like I, I said before the game, that I, I was quite unsure about him as, as a number nine going forward for Man United for the whole season. Then he ended up doing quite well against Arsenal. But I don't think Man United can be able to play like that every game, and those are the games that suit him better. 
Um, and it is being able to hold on to the ball, having possession for the majority of the game. Like that's the game plan going forward. Like that's how they're going to play against a Crystal Palace that they're supposed to be playing at the weekend, or uh, you know another mid-table side. And and those are the games where Rashford seems to just struggle a bit more. Like he seems to, he doesn't trust himself. You know, you can see he gets on the ball and he gets a bit indecisive and and doesn't really know what to do, and he ends up not doing all lot with it. Um, and, and, you know, that's just one of the, the like, not signing a number nine is, is like the huge issue, uh, really, uh, when you can, which is a bit mad when you consider they already spent a lot of money uh, in the summer. Um, even now, like even in, in this Europa League game, you can see it's very obvious that the lack of a proper number nine, because um, Ronaldo just isn't that anymore, the lack of a proper number nine who can get goals and contribute in the team is just going to dampen their potential for this season. So, you know, it, it, it was a great result, and I, I do think it was a very positive performance. But at the same time, it was one that really highlighted that there's still a lot of work to be done at Man United for Ten Hag. Yeah, spot on. Um, and like you said, you know, I've had half an eye on, on this United performance against Real Sociedad tonight, and, and I think it's it's probably um, hammers home the point that Ronaldo isn't necessarily that player anymore. Um, so it does probably put an unnecessary amount of pressure on, on, on Rashford to perform. Um, I mean, you know, he's probably well capable of it and we've seen it in the past, um, particularly earlier in his career, um, that, that, you know, he can score goals and he can kind of get in behind the lines to, 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 to score his chances. But um, you do wonder, is that is that going to be a priority in the next winter or two? Um, Entity seemed to do quite well on, on, on the wing. He got his goal, his debut goal. Um, from everything I've seen United this season um, aside from obviously the Brentford game and maybe certain ex- uh, um, uh, parts of um, the, the Brighton game has been Christian Eriksen who just looks like on the surface the best signing United have made in the post-Ferguson era um, I mean just an utterly class player in everything he does Um much more likable than, than Bruno Fernandes for many obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, and hell of a story as well, obviously, you know, to come back from, from the cardiac arrest uh, last summer for, in the Euros with Denmark, but just an utterly class player. And, and again, I do have certain fears as well that will United come overly reliant on him as well um, and, you know, kind of fall apart when he's not available. And obviously, he's 30 now, he will also need to be rotated in and out. Um, but, I mean, a hell of a player. And, and it's good to show him, see him back showing his class um, at this very high level again. Absolutely. And he's been he's been United's best player so far this season. And what's kind of helped United is that it's allowed them to push Fernandez. I think. Fernandez has always done his best work when he's had no involvement in build-up play. Just have him as close to the goals as possible. He's grand when he does his little flicks and he can score and he is very creative. But you want him doing it there. You don't want him doing it in his own half, as we saw so many times last season. He'd be pumping balls out of play and all this kind of stuff. But um, there's been a few moments with Ericsson. Like, again, in the Liverpool game, he does the 1-2 with Alanga. Like, Fred can't play that ball in behind Alexander-Arnold. And then against Arsenal... He pinged a couple into Fernandez as well. There's, there's no one else in the United midfield. Like if McTominay did that, he'd take Fernandez's head off. Like that's just the way it would end <laughs> up going. Um, but he does look, he does look like he gets a bit leggy as the games go on, which is only natural. And like he still hasn't played that much football since the the cardiac arrest. Like he had less than half a season at Brentford. He's probably only getting like fully confident back in himself, and like you can only imagine how much an instant like that would have to mess with your head. But it is brilliant to see him. Like, you're looking at him and you're thinking, like, that's that's the Christian Eriksen, you know. He's not playing as high up the pitch. He, he's dropping back a little bit more, but he's still so good on the ball. And he's covering the ground. I think he ran, I think it was 11.9 kilometres he ran against Arsenal. So he's still well able to get around the park. Um, but yeah, he's been a, he's been a very good, uh, he's been a success story for United so far, that's for sure. Yeah, I think the signings in general that Man United have made have been pretty positive. Like, I, I think Lissandra Martinez has been a really great addition uh, in defense. Like, I, you know, I, Maguire was just 
such a lost cause last season that I think refreshing the defense has ended up being kind of worthwhile because everything was so toxic there. And it gives him a chance to kind of reset and come back at a later date and maybe get back to, to playing better than he was last year. But in, in the meantime, Martinez and Varane has proved a, a really solid centre-back partnership. Malassi has been a revelation at left-back. Uh, pretty tidy fee in that as well. 15 million, very unlike by United in recent years to, to make such a, a shrewd-looking signing. Um, you know, remains to be seen, I suppose, how Anthony will get on. But a call on debut is a pretty good way to start, so... Um, pretty positive um, uh, transfer window in general. Just you know, there was so much that needed to be done that they they couldn't quite get it all done in one window. I guess, um, and I suppose we'll also see how Casemiro gets on. But like that, that seems like a pretty uh, positive signing as well in, in the short term. The Irish women's team led uh, led uh, followed up their win against Finland with another win this week against Slovakia. Um, and I think the term for this Irish team at the moment is probably uh, professional. They, they seem to do everything in a very professional manner, get the results, nothing too fancy, um, and just move it along. And I suppose the good thing about this result now means that they've skipped that kind of first-round playoff scenario that they were in. It still seems like a very convoluted system that I'm not even going to attempt to uh, explain, but <laughs> we are in, 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 in the higher category of, of uh, playoff teams, so um, I'm not sure exactly who awaits us um, or when <laughs> for this second-round playoff, but... Um, one step closer to a to a potential World Cup for an Irish team in 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 twenty twenty three, which will be uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and they're doing things in as you said, such a professional way. They're just kind of grinding grinding games out. Um, it wasn't an easy game. Slovakia kicked lumps out of them, especially poor old Kate McCabe got absolute lumps knocked out of her. But they're doing something. I was listening to Denise O'Sullivan speaking the day after game. She was saying like. Uh, They've just kind of learned how to win. You saw it out the Finland game, a bit of a dodgy start, but they got the goal and then they were very comfortable throughout. A little bit of time wasting here or there, nothing silly, kept it very tight. They did the same then against Slovakia. And there's a good strength and depth in the squad as well. They had four players missing for that game. And, like, I mean, they, they didn't really miss a beat. So it's all looking very positive. I, I still haven't a clue what the playoff system is. I've heard three or four different people explain it. And I know less than I did at the beginning, but <laughs> if it's one last round, that can only be a positive thing. Yeah, and grinding out victories, like that's what you want to be able, that's kind of what you want to be practicing going into a playoff as well. Like just seeing out one nil wins. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure involved in trying to do that in a playoff. You know, we saw the men completely capitulate there against Denmark uh, all those years ago uh, now. But uh, yeah, hopefully the, the women can kind of take to heart the last couple of results and performances and kind of use that experience of seeing out these games and, and bring that with them into the playoffs because getting to the World Cup would be massive. Absolutely, yeah. And you mentioned um, Denise Sullivan speaking after the game and, you know, there's there's a nice blend of, say, super experienced, high-caliber players in the squad with the likes of Sullivan who, you know, she's over in North Carolina, um, had some spells uh, on loan around the world uh, in recent years. But, um, you know, so much success throughout her career, um, either through Glasgow or, or, or winning the, uh, the NWSL over in America. Uh, Katie McCabe, obviously, at the very highest level with Arsenal. Um, and then, we, you know, when you mix it in with the likes of um, Heather Payne, um, Lily Egg, who got the, the goal uh, against Finland, um, there is a, a, a very nice mix and, and there is a, a decent strength and depth. Like you said, um, the players that they are able to bring out of the match um, I think Leanne Kiernan from, from Liverpool came on against Slovakia Ellen Malloy as well who's a, a, a homegrown talent there at, at Wexford um, so it, you know it does broad well for, for, for the potential playoffs um, and it, I mean you know that's something that's probably eluded Irish various Irish teams over the years is winning games and I think you know winning uh, kind of uh, you get a taste for it eventually and it seems like this Irish team um, have found a taste for it now and, and it, it is very easy to get into a, a run of games um, and especially in you know international football where if you are grounding out results uh, one nils nil nils you know it does pave the way for for um, uh, for international uh, or for tournament football um, and again you know that sort of form should hopefully uh, bode well for them next summer uh, so fingers crossed, uh, we will be cheering them on in in uh, 
down in Oz next summer. Um, quickly then, just to finish off, Fushin, I know you've been keeping an eye on it, is the Shamrock Rovers uh, game in the Conference League tonight against Your Gardens. Um, I'd have, I've had a half an eye on it. Um, watched the first half. Absolutely brilliant atmosphere at it. Uh, between both sets of supporters, mm-hmm. it, it seems, uh, the Swedes have brought over a, a pretty decent uh, contingent of fans. But um fairly even game uh, on, uh, uh, by the looks of it. Yeah, it's um, it's just entering the ninety fourth minute now, so there's only a minute left. But Rovers in the second half have been um, they've been very good. There's been a couple of missed chances. Dylan Watts missed a huge chance where it just kind of broke to him and he smashed it straight at the goalie. Aaron Green had another one as well where he he kind of rounded the keeper and it was on his right foot and he didn't fancy it and he turned back and it ended up coming to nothing. There was long range shot there that's just been saved, but they can be if it does stay nil uh, nil. Brilliant night. They didn't, you know, you'd expect maybe they're playing against uh, a team that are second in the Swedish top division. So they're obviously a very good team playing at a very high level. But there was no trying to park the bus or anything like that. Played some really good football on another night. Definitely could have won. Gaffney, he had another good chance as well. Uh, Alan Manis hasn't had an awful lot to do. Um, So it's been been very positive, uh, very positive start. Definitely could have got a win though out of this one. Now, at the same time, they've had some chances too, but it's not one that you'd say kind of got away. But if you came to the end of the group and you just missed out on a couple of points, you'd say that was a great chance to, to get three points. But it's great to see. Great to see an Irish team uh, being competitive in Europe and not just being competitive or just, you know, staying in the game. Like, I think the possession, I think they had 60% possession in the first half over. So, like, they can, they can definitely hold their heads up high. Uh, with this and it should give them confidence going forward Absolutely and obviously you know we could be looking back at this result uh, as potential you know missed opportunity um, but I think a point in your first uh, Conference League group stage game isn't to be sniffed at at all Yeah not to make it uh, too cynical but a draw does bring in you know a bit of money as well which uh, would be pretty good too (laughs) Of course Yeah, and I mean, you know, Molden and and Gint, it is a pretty difficult group, but I don't think it's 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 overly daunting either. I mean, you know, it probably will encourage them that you know if they can if they can go toe to toe with uh, with your garden over over ninety minutes in Tala, that they could very much do the same against Molden and and, and Gint, and maybe even target a win in those two games. Uh, I don't think any team is going to fancy coming to Tala. I I think Rovers are unbeaten there in Europe this season. Um, and they've a really good record in the league, so there's definitely, you know, there's definitely room to get a win in the group, absolutely, and to be competitive. Um, and to, I do like the way, like uh, Bradley spoken about, uh, not just making up the numbers, basically. And um, on the base of tonight's performance, yeah, no one's going to fancy going to Tala to take them on. Good stuff. I think it's just been blown up. So a, a one point draw or a, a nil all draw um, and one point. To kick things off for, for Rovers, um, all good there and tell Declan, Oshin, thanks a million for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Kev, anytime. So we leave it there, so okey doke. Good night and God bless.